It so happens that this, the Sunday Ron invited me to preach, is also my first Sunday back here after in quite a long while. I have been with Glenn during his 15-month interim at Zion Mennonite, and last Sunday that ended. They gave us a gracious send-off. And it is good to be back here in our home congregation this morning with you with the snow drifting out of the clouds. Listening to the radio one day recently, a new song caught my ear. This song, the announcer warned, is not intended to cheer us up. Like many people, the songwriter is feeling hammered by all the bad economic news, and so he sings his heart out. Times is hard, times is tough, nothing's easy, it's all rough. There's not much right, so much gone wrong, all I can do is play this song. Times is rough, times is hard, take a pair of scissors to your credit card. Circuit City just said, so long, all I can do is play this song. It goes on for at least nine more stanzas. Some days, I had to admit I could sing right along with this ballad. Investments, 401ks, hard times, downturn, stimulus, economy. These words sit in the back of my mind whether I'm in church or out. But today, I am also hearing another set of words. Today, in Mark chapter 9, you have heard them already, dazzling, transfigured, bleached, terrified, overwhelmed, overshadowed. What is occurring on that mountain stage catches my eye and perks up my ears. In eight short verses, verses 2 through 9 of chapter 9, we go up the mountain. We stand with Peter, James, and John in an encounter that switches things up and then we come back down again. Mark 9, 2 says, Jesus took with him only Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. This comes six days after Jesus has made a bold, apocalyptic, end-of-times kind of statement. In 9, 1, he says, Some standing here, will see that the kingdom of God has come with power. He wants them to pay close attention to what is in front of them. Jesus has been on the move. Mark's Jesus is very active. If you turn to chapter 8 in your Bible and want to take a look at it, you can scan the action that has come just before this passage that we have today. First in chapter 8, Jesus feeds a crowd of 4,000, and then he sends them away and gets into a boat with his disciples crossing over. On land again, the Pharisees test him, and in verse 12 we read that he sighs deeply in his spirit. He leaves them, gets into the boat again with the slow-to-get-it disciples, and crosses over to the other side. Now we're at verse 13 of chapter 8 before this one. More people follow, and in verses 22 through 26, 
he cures a blind man. It seems that everywhere he goes, people are sick and hungry for food and for hope. The road is hard, and it is going to get harder. Jesus is not there to cheer them up, but to share the truth. And so he tells them, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. Jesus has kept his disciples close teaching as they move along together, and he quizzes them. And we spoke this question this morning, who do you say that I am? Six days later, up the mountain, Peter, James, and John get a powerful answer, and it comes out of the clouds, like the snow, perhaps. Imagining this setting, I think of the word numinous. Numinous means the intense feeling of unknowingly knowing that there is something which cannot be seen. Or it can mean that which is wholly other, fascinating, something we can know but cannot understand. A journalist once asked the novelist Marilyn Robinson, have you ever had a religious awakening? And she responded, no, a mountaintop kind of mystical experience would be wasted on me because ordinary things seem so numinous. Some of us have read Gilead or Home, her novels, which are not so much about dazzling light on mountaintops as they are about finding redemption in unremarkable daily living in small towns. These ordinary, numinous experiences do happen all around us if we have the eyes to see. Recently, a teenager shared with me her realization of who Jesus is. I have accepted God, she said. I want to tell you this. She had just been with some people from her home country learning about God, and in that place, she had met some people, she learned, that if they went back to their home country and it became known that they are Christian, they could die for their faith. She is amazed at their courage. But at the same time, she isn't waiting for some extreme challenge like that to live out her faith, but instead she is bringing it home here and now. So what difference does Jesus make in her life? I am learning a very hard thing she tells me. I am learning that I need to love everyone and I can't hate anyone. And even if someone really annoys me, I still have to love them, she says. I try to tell myself that they too are made in God's image, but it's still hard. She sees already that learning to love takes a whole lifetime of courage. And that sometimes it comes in ordinary and sometimes unusual ways. In Mark, we often see Jesus' humanity. But what Peter, James, and John are seeing up on the mountain is more than is humanly possible. Here we see Jesus' divinity. In verses 2, 3, and 4 of Mark 9, we read, Jesus was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth 
could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Even the weather gets involved, and the voice comes out of the clouds. The cloud overshadows them. God comes close in a way that you cannot ignore. The three disciples see Elijah, Moses, and Jesus talking with each other, but we don't get to hear what they're saying. We can see the action, but the picture seems to be on mute. We can't hear what they're telling each other. In fact, in this whole passage, if you think about it, Jesus is not saying anything before this. He has been speaking and teaching, and we have all those sayings. But now this word comes not from him, but about him, out of the clouds. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Earlier at Jesus' baptism, this same heavenly voice spoke directly to Jesus. You are my son, the beloved. Further down the road of suffering in Jerusalem, in Mark 12:39, later in the book, this same testimony will come out of the mouth of the centurion who stood facing Jesus in his dying hours. The Roman centurion said, Truly, this man was God's son. And now in the cloud, the heavenly voice announces it to the disciples. This is my son, the beloved. Son of God, what did it mean? This is why they're supposed to listen to Jesus. So let's unpack this phrase a little bit. Today, it seems familiar to connect this term with Jesus, hardly thinking about it, son of God. But in first century Palestine, son of God was not a term that was reserved just for Jesus. We can find in scripture other uses for son of God. I find this interesting, so let me give just three of them. In the time of Moses, God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, let my son go. So in that day, son of God could refer to Israel. And again, in the time of Elijah, speaking of the king in a psalm, God says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Son of God, in that usage, could refer to a king. And finally, in the book of Job, protecting angels are referred to as sons of God. So son of God in that time involved a close relationship that was covenantal, it was vital, and it was trusting. The first readers of Mark would have known that calling Jesus son of God was taking it as far as you could take it. A son could represent the father, could act on behalf of the father. A father's favor would rest on a son. And a beloved son is one who is chosen to receive authority and blessing and love. So when the disciples heard son of God, they would have understood the context. They could have seen the significance of being chosen by God, of representing God, of acting for God. 
It was as if the message was, if you want to see the kingdom of God come with power, follow this one. Here is the beloved one. Here is the one who will overcome death and despair in all its forms. The disciples' plight and the plight of all the sick and the hungry, far from being meaningless, was unfolding within the arc of God's redemptive plan. In Jesus, God had done what the Bible said God would do. God had heard the people's cry and come to help them. Listen to him. What was Jesus himself thinking in all of this? Interpreters differ on when or how it was that Jesus knew he was the Son of God. The scholar N.T. Wright takes a try at saying what Jesus himself may have been thinking. Listen to a few of his words. He says, I do not think Jesus knew he was God in the same sense that one knows one is tired or happy, male or female. Jesus probably did not sit back and say to himself, well, I never I'm the second person of the Trinity. Rather, Wright goes on, as part of his human vocation, grasped in faith, sustained in prayer, tested in confrontation, agonized over in further prayer and doubt, and implemented in action, he believed he had to do and be for Israel and the whole world that which, according to the scripture, only Yahweh himself could do and be. There's a little more from Wright. He says, Jesus of Nazareth was gripped by a strong sense of vocation. All that we know about him suggests that he was powerfully aware, not just of a general numinous quality to the universe, but of the deeply personal presence and purpose, strength and guidance of the one he called Abba, Father. Then as now, we have many different streams of thought about Jesus, who he was and in what ways he was human and divine, and we try to sort this out. We ask, in what ways is Jesus continuing the faith tradition, and in what ways was he bringing a new message In our decade, I think these questions get more traction than before because we are more aware of other people who answer these questions differently than we do. And very often, they are our neighbors. A few weeks ago, I sat discussing a book with several women from here. We had read the book. The title is The Faith Club, A Muslim, a Christian, a Jew. Three women search for understanding. I can't resist pointing out that we have been talking about three men on the mountain, and here we have three women sitting around kitchen tables. Sometime after 9-11, a couple of mothers decided to write a children's book. They wanted to highlight the connections between their faiths. Their children were going to school every day with classmates of other faiths, and they wanted them to feel safe and hopeful, not frightened. 
And so they got together to talk, and their long talks turned into this book. And better yet, their long talks turned into a friendship. They had wondered about the risk. Would their own faith be stripped away as they engaged in this conversation? The opposite happened. As each one sought out friends within their own congregations to deepen their own faith and to talk with them about their own doubts, something more happened. Emily, one of the three, shares her numinous moment. She is in an airplane looking out and down at the world, and she begins to reflect, and this is what she thinks. The world is so beautiful. I was talking the talk. Shouldn't I be walking the walk? I used to believe God existed, but now the papers are full of horrible horrors, but at the same time, the earth is so lovely. And so, she says, I decided to take a leap of faith. Life is, after all, a series of leaps, falling in love and believing that I will grow old with my husband. That is a leap. Losing a parent and believing I will recover is a leap. Giving birth to children and letting go as they grow, hoping that they will lead safe, happy lives, that is a leap. Living in a world of chaos, believing that good will triumph over evil, that is a leap. Maybe I could hold God's hand as I leaped. Talking about this with East, my East Chestnut Street friends, we acknowledge that some of us would have grown up understanding that the very point or at least the hope of interfaith conversations would be to convert the other, even though we would have never, in doing that, wanted to coerce or force anything. Today we see it differently, but we still puzzle over the question, what personal or congregational posture do we want to take in these kinds of conversations? What missional efforts do we feel best about supporting? What does it mean to be invitational in these kinds of settings? Do we talk about it? I remembered this conversation as I thought about Eliza, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus talking to each other there on the mountain. Of course, they were not trying to represent three different faiths as we might think of it now. They were flowing in the same stream. But when the cloud clears, Elijah and Moses are gone, the others look around, and they see standing there Jesus only. Only Jesus. Jesus stands alone. So what does this mean? I have heard that Nancy Heisey, who teaches at Eastern Mennonite University, tells her students in Bible class uh, a clue that they can remember for how to read the scriptures. She says to them, when two texts disagree, Jesus is the referee. That's the clue she gives them. Of course, the Gospels within themselves don't even always agree on the details. 
So, for example, in today's passage, Matthew and Mark have the disciples going up the mountain six days after. That's how our chapter begins today. But in Luke, they go up eight days after. But we get the point. It isn't always in the details, but in the way, the lens through which we interpret scripture that makes a difference in how we live our lives. Back then, the word of God had been coming down the mountain a long time before the transfiguration. Moses had come down the mountain and brought the written word of God to the people. Elijah had come down the mountain and brought the spoken word of God to the people. And now Jesus comes down the mountain, the living voice, the living presence of God in the world. Listen to him. Someone has said that Transfiguration Sunday is really a day for mystics. And another person has said that this text in the past had been an opportunity sometimes for Mennonite preachers in this area to point out the dangers of trying to build buildings that had too much art in them or that were designed to preserve history. Because, after all, Peter's idea of building dwellings didn't fly, and it was to be Jesus alone, Jesus only. What would they have said about the green shutters that have gone up? I don't know. I think that would have been a thumbs up. At least that's what I give it, a thumbs up. Of course, uh, Mennonites typically don't name things after the transfiguration. Another kind of Christian congregation might name their church, Church of the Transfiguration, but we prefer East Chestnut Street or perhaps Chapel of the Sermon on the Mount, which, if I'm remembering right, is what I think the chapel is called at the seminary in Elkhart. But today, coming out of the cloud, standing in the clearing on this Sunday, I want to remember at least several things. I want to see that the plight of the disciples and the other people back then, whatever it was, and our plight today, far from being meaningless, unfolds within the arc of God's redemptive plan. I want to confess that when the clouds clear, I see Jesus one with God, standing there. I believe this day is about shimmering moments, numinous moments, and that it is about ethical living and loving one another. I can hardly explain it, and I can only partly describe it, but I know that there is something more. And so today... On this Sunday, I am ready to sing, Take Us Up the Mountain, Jesus.